0: So, we're going to continue tonight with the um, message that God likes covenants. We started that uh, last time we were in this series, and, and this is the continuation of that. God likes covenants, and, and we should like the fact that He likes covenants. Because if you stop and think about the things that we do on any given Sunday, just like we did tonight, we get together, we pray. And in that prayer, we reach out and we dare to speak to the creator of the universe. We dare to speak up to the one who is mightier than the storm. We have certain times, like this season, and there's there's weather going on like there is right now. We get a little worried about storms, and I apologize. I, I created some... I created some confusion on Facebook because I posted an old picture about being in a storm and Facebook doesn't bother to tell you that that picture is six years old. But of course we pay attention because we know the potential and the power that a storm has and yet how easily we just enter into prayer not realizing that the one who commands the storm, the one who's greater than the storm is the one that we're talking to. The reason that you and I can do that And we shouldn't be scared. We should be respectful, but not scared, not terrified. The reason we can do that is because of the covenants that God has set in place. Um, So to review, we looked at the covenants with Noah. And there God made a covenant signified by the rainbow that he said, I'm not going to destroy the world uh, by by washing it out, by flooding it out. I'm, I'm not going to do that. He made, a, he made a move towards peace. Uh, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Jacob, and then the covenant with Moses. And that takes us to the next covenant in line, which is the covenant with David. Um, and keep in mind that all of these covenants so far are not uh, taking one away and replacing it, like we're changing out dead batteries or changing out a burned-out light bulb. But they're additive, and they expand, and they build on the, on the last one. They, they move us a little closer. They're, they're helping us grow up. They're helping us move into relationship as a human race. They're helping us to enter into relationship with this magnificent being that we call God. In 2 Samuel 7, uh, God has blessed his people and they've developed so that now they're a kingdom and they have a king and his grace allowed them to have a king even though he didn't think it was such a great idea for them and tried to warn them. But now they have that king. In fact, they have their uh, second king, David, and this king is a king that God chose. And so late in his career as king, in his rule as king, David is thinking about the God that that he has a relationship with. And in 2 Samuel 7, the king is settled in his palace, the palace that the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him. And so he says to Nathan, the prophet who speaks on behalf of God, David says, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. David thinks that there's something very wrong with that picture. And Nathan says, whatever you have in mind, you go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I've not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, did I ever say to any of them, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I have cut off all of your enemies from before you. Now, I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, he will be my son. And when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God enters into a covenant with David, and once again, like with all the covenants, God initiates it. David's thinking that 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 he needs to build a house for God. Now, God will not allow that, not because uh, God's the bigger person. No, God is God, and He's not a person. He is God. God says that it's not appropriate for David or any other ruler to build Him a house, because God will go where He wills. He will go where He wants. The name that he reveals to Moses is, I am who I am. God is self-defining. He is not defined by us, and he cannot be contained by us. And the fact that Solomon will build him a temple is just God's grace, as he's mentioned here uh, to David. But for David, he's going to establish David and build him a house. God's going to do this for him. And it's not just for him. It's for all the world. God is fulfilling his promise. The promise that he made back to Abraham when he said, through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. This promise to Abraham that he's going to have a child has now grown into a kingdom. How magnificent is that? This is all about God keeping his promises, keeping his covenants. Um. You might want to take, uh, you know, we, we all know that, fa- that line from uh, John F. Kennedy, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Well, in this story, we learn, ask not what you can do for God. Ask what God has already done for you. Uh, here, David realizes that simply because of God's grace and God's initiative, he's going to build his house into an everlasting kingdom. Now, that'll, get, that'll ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus, and, and we'll get to that at a later time. But this is the covenant with the royal house of David, a promise. This also puts some pressure on God. God has to keep this promise, even through the exile. If you remember when we talked about the different lenses through which we read the Old Testament, one of those is the exile. What happens if God's people are unfaithful to him, and they break their promise to him. Is is God going to keep that promise to David? What happens if David's children and his descendants are unfaithful and they don't care for God the way David did? And that does happen. Does God still keep his promise? You're going to see that God is the sort of God who keeps these covenants and keeps these promises despite anything at all that's thrown at him. There's always a threat to that promise, but God responds to it and overcomes it. Nothing keeps him from keeping his word and being faithful. God is faithfulness. So God takes the initiative. God calls us to change and grow into covenant. Uh, There's no condition to this. God says, I'm doing this for you, David, and this is going to be good for all, and it's just the way it is, and now we um, we have the establishment of a kingdom and a government that will transcend any other government on earth. Ultimately, in Christ, and that becomes very important. So that even here we are in this day and age, and there are very few uh, bona fide kings and queens left on earth. Uh, most of them are ceremonial, symbolic, constitutional. Few of them retain. Ultimate power, uh, but we don't have a lot of that. We certainly don't live with that in our culture, and so that, that can make us very concerned about politics and the political wins and which parties in, in power. Well, just remember this covenant that God made with a, a, a shepherd king thousands of years ago is still in effect, and he's keeping the promise that there is one who is his son. Who rules on that throne? And no matter whatever changes in governments you and I see, Christ is still king, because God likes covenants. This takes us to the next covenant. The next covenant we'll find in Jeremiah thirty-one. Now, this is the uh, this is the kingdom at the time of David, and then there are kings that follow after him, and then there's that exile. Uh, first Israel. The Northern Kingdom goes into exile, taken over by the Assyrians in 721, and 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 then the uh, the Southern Kingdom, Judah and Jerusalem, which retains the temple and uh, retains the throne of David. Uh, in the sixth uh, century BC, they are invaded by Babylon, and Israel loses or Judah loses their land. They lose their kingdom. And they lose their priesthood. That is a crushing blow to their identity. The things that they thought made them God's special people. Now they knew it was all about God. But they had the signs of it. They had the things that represent it. Just imagine for a moment. If we were to to lose this building. Okay. We'd be sad. We'd be troubled. We We would... be concerned over it and we would have some questions and we'd wonder what are we going to do but we would not cease to be God's people we would not cease to be his church here in this community we would just have to get a new address all right those those sort of things happen and they're unsettling but as invested as we are in these things Israel was even more invested because their government their Their identity, their location was right there in all of that. And then they lose it by an invader. And here's the dilemma. If they lose the land that God promised, if they lose the king that God promised, if they lose the priesthood that represented God, there's a couple of conclusions. You would argue that A, Babylon is stronger than God and God cannot defend his people. It's not what we know about God. Or God breaks his promises. But What if there's another option? What if God has kept his promises but the people have not? That they are the ones that have broken faith. That's the conclusion that the children of the people in exile will come up with that is what they will hear from the prophets and understand from the prophets and see in Scripture is they will realize we broke faith with God. He did not break faith with us. That is an incredible insight for them. And God, through his prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, mentioned this to them. Jeremiah, for example, has a sermon where he comes to the temple and he says, Do not trust in these words this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord, because that's where they were putting their faith, not in the God who made himself known in that temple, but in the temple that they thought contained that God. And that was the sort of attitude and way of operating that caused the people to break faith with God. Then they thought that God was like any other God that you could manage and control. But as much as Jeremiah is telling them how they got into the sorry state that they're in, he's also sharing with them God's word of promises of new covenants to come. So if you look at Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, starting in verse um, 27, Jeremiah says... The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will plant the kingdoms of Israel and Judah with the offspring of people and of animals, just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down and to overthrow, destroy, and bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, people will no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. That's a and, and, you know, don't try to make that into something deeply biblical. That's just a homespun way of saying something like uh, finer than a frog's hair, which if you go looking for hairs on frogs, you'll never find one. That's how fine it is. Uh, or I've heard finer than a frog's hair split three ways, you know, which is even more impossible. Here, the idea is is that the the people ate the sour grapes, and then it's their kids who are getting the bad effect of it. That's what the people are saying. I told you, the children of the the people who went into exile are saying, they're the ones that ate the sour grapes. We're the ones whose teeth are set on edge. But Jeremiah says, that old saying is going to go away. Instead, everyone will die for their own sin, and whoever eats sour grapes, it's going to be their own teeth. That are set on edge. In other words, from here on out, you eat your sour grapes and you're going to, uh, you know, get a toothache for it. Here's the covenant. I love that because there's a little bit, of, little bit of, you know, country humor in the prophets right there. That's exactly what that is. Uh, real life living. He says, and so here's his big statement. Verse 31, Jeremiah 31, 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. With the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God, they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is a vision of a new covenant. Now, he says it will be different than the one that he made with their ancestors when he took them out of Egypt. But wasn't the Exodus an important lens through which to read Scripture, especially in the Old Testament? Yeah, you bet. And here it is. Here's that lens showing up right here in Jeremiah's prophecy. The difference, though, is that instead of this being external, instead of this covenant being based on written laws that the people are going to have to learn, instead of it uh, being simple to teach people who've come out of Egypt what it means to live as God's people, this one is going to be internal. This is a mature covenant. The, as important as the Exodus covenant was, and the Exodus story even more important because of what God did, the, the, the nature of the covenant was still very grade school, still sort of kindergarten. We've got ten rules here. Here's what it is. You remember that book that everything I, I ever needed to know I learned in kindergarten. Okay, there's some truth to that. But sometimes we have to go beyond kindergarten lessons. Because if we stay in kindergarten, we don't think for ourselves. We, we don't know what to do. But we have to grow up. Here, God is saying, I'm ready to have a covenant with my people where they are as invested in it as much as I am. If that's even possible. Because the law is going to be kept in their heart. It's going to be kept in their mind. They're going to know it. They're not going to have to say know the Lord. They know the Lord. They know me. Notice that God, as he's doing in every covenant, is moving towards relationship. He wants to be known by the people. So what you see in Jeremiah 31 is this vision of a new covenant. And you have the, the admission that the reason why the old covenant broke is not because God doesn't keep his promises, but because they broke faith. He was the faithful husband, and they broke faith with him. Uh, But here we have the the beginnings of a vision of a new covenant coming about. Same vision, a different prophet you'll find in Ezekiel 36. Um, Jeremiah and Ezekiel are preaching more or less about the same time, but they have very different styles. They're both prophets They're both responding to the same crisis of the exile. So when you're reading Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you need to read it through the lens of the exile. The exodus will always be there. All those lenses, uh, especially those two, are in operation. Here, um, Ezekiel, and Ezekiel's got a very different style. Uh, I've always said that if um, Jeremiah and Ezekiel were comedians, ridiculous, isn't it? But if they were, then uh, Jeremiah would be uh, a, an observational one-liner comic, and Ezekiel would be a prop comic. He would be the kind of guy that brings out, you know, the uh, the funny hat and the arrow through the head and all that, because, Jer- I'm sorry, Ezekiel. Ezekiel would be the guy with the props, because he does some strange stuff, okay? And I'm just going to leave this here with you to let you know that When you go to the health food store and you see Ezekiel bread, you do not want them to make Ezekiel bread according to the true biblical recipe. It has some stuff in there that you don't want to eat, okay? And I'm going to leave it at that. That's Ezekiel 4, and we'll move on. Now, uh, but again, Ezekiel does this strange stuff to make a point. Here's Ezekiel, and he has a message, and yet notice how similar he still is to Jeremiah. Verse 22. Uh, Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It's not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign lord when i am proved holy through you before their eyes Uh, verse 24 for i will take you out of the nations i will gather you from the countries and bring you back into your own land i will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean i will cleanse you from your impurities and from your idols i will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors, you will be my people, and I will be your God. Here, he he, he has some vivid images, but it's the same basic message that jeremiah is giving in jeremiah 31 but there's that image of the divine heart surgery i'm going to take out your 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 heart of stone which is stubborn and and hardened and immovable and i'm going to give you a heart of flesh my spirit is going to be in you what is that spirit it's everything that what's coming up in ezekiel is his very vivid image of the dry bones coming together like some sort of zombie picture and the the the, you know the bones are coming together and they're getting flesh attached to it but they're still not alive until God breathes his spirit into them and that's the creation story coming back where God builds the structure of a human being but it's not alive until he breathes his spirit into it and so he's saying I'm going to rebuild you and I'm going to breathe my spirit into you and you'll truly live. This is that new covenant. And from from Jeremiah and Ezekiel on, God's people have that vision and they're trying to understand what it means to have this new covenant and what it will mean. Not just to follow rules, but to be changed so that we're not just doing what the written word says, but the written word becomes our second nature. One of the reasons we should like the fact that our God likes covenants is that it transforms us. His word is changes us. And and here, the, the, the covenant of God is not represented by a rainbow or by stone tablets or by the uh, sacrifice and the cutting up of animals. But the covenant is represented... By us. His spirit at work in us. And God says, I'm not doing this just for you. I'm doing this to restore my good name. People are going to see that the people I have called represent me well. And I'm going to change you to do that. If you skip on down to verse 32. Ezekiel 36 verse 32. If you have any doubts that he's not doing this for them. I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake. (laughs) Wow. Thanks God. But I'm glad you're doing it anyway. This declares the sovereign Lord. In fact. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, people of Israel. They're coming to terms with the fact that they broke covenant, but still God's going to keep covenant, and he's going to change them, and that's going to be so that they will be a witness to all people, to all nations, which goes back to the covenant he's keeping with Abraham. Through you, all nations will be blessed. Now, there's a lot. There's, there's so many other examples of this, but I want to move... To 1 Corinthians 15. Um, I'm sorry. uh, 1 Corinthians 11. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. we, We read this on Sundays around the communion table. And I think that's good. But let's always... Keep in mind that there's more going on in communion than just following a procedure. That that procedure is like any of the covenants that God talks about. It's, it's transformative. It ought to change us. And if we will open ourselves up to God and his spirit, we will be renewed. Communion is much more than a time for us to apologize to God all over the place and say, I'll do better next week. I promise I'll do better next week. Just keep me alive until next Sunday. It's, in fact, a time to open ourselves up so that God can change us because we're remembering that our God likes covenants, and Jesus, his son, knows that. So when Paul is telling the Corinthians about the supper that the Lord observed with his disciples... And by the way, 1 Corinthians 15 is probably the earliest record that we have of this. This predates the Gospels. Before Matthew, Mark, Luke wrote anything at all about that night, you had this. Paul knew this. He had received it. And he says, um, I received from the Lord what I passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, isn't it interesting that in Paul and in all of the Gospels, when Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. There's no record of anyone raising their hand going, new covenant? What was wrong with the old one? Why? Because they had read Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They had heard Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They were waiting for this new covenant. They were, they were expecting it. They were, they were experiencing it. In Jesus already. And now Jesus is saying, Oh, this, this new covenant, it's today. My blood is going to be the blood that seals that covenant and, and, and puts it into effect. Um, now they have this, this new sign of covenant. And notice that what is it that's interesting about communion that we do? On Sunday, when we partake of the body and the blood, the bread and the cup, we take it inside of ourselves, we ingest it, we internalize it, and the new covenant is going to be internal. It's not something that we have to go up and touch or, or you know, put anointing oil on it or anything like that. It's something that we take within us, just like the new covenant that Ezekiel and Jeremiah talked about. If you want to see uh, another exposition on that, take a look with me real quick and we'll, we'll conclude here. At Hebrews 8. In Hebrews 8, um, this is a comparison between the covenant of Moses and now this new covenant that, that Jeremiah and Ezekiel were envisioning and that now Jesus has put into effect that he brought to us very clearly in the Lord's Supper. He says, uh, verse 3, Hebrews 8, 3, Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that's a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry of Jesus has but in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which He is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. but God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. And no longer will they teach their neighbor to say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now, that was Jeremiah 31. Direct quote. Now, the preacher in Hebrews goes back and says, By calling this covenant new, he's made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. And here he's talking about this new covenant that we have in Jesus. And and you you continue through Hebrews and you realize that Jesus is king and he's priest and he's sacrifice and he his blood. He's everything. Jesus is everything that's needed. You don't have to have this this system with all these parts, but it's all in Jesus. Like Paul says in Colossians, everything is summed up. The whole fullness of God is in him. Now. We've put all this out here because it points to the fact that our God likes covenants. In fact, he likes covenants so much that he is willing to die. He is willing to sacrifice himself to maintain his covenant with the people that he loves. What sort of God likes covenants? Well, if you think about that, here's just some thoughts. A God of integrity. A God who is determined to save who will spare no expense, who will even put his son, or another way to look at it is he'll even put himself on the line in many ways. And we'll get into the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, and all that later on. But this is also a God who in keeping covenants, his ability to keep a promise is so strong and so determined that when he keeps that promise, It changes us. That's pretty powerful. I'm hearing myself all over again. Uh, (laughs) uh, But think about that. That means that when God keeps his covenant, he changes us. Have you ever kept a promise that changed someone else? Maybe. Maybe by keeping your promises, you influence somebody's character. You influence them to do better. Well, if you can do that, how much more then can God do that with us? We ought to love the fact that our God likes covenants. And that's the kind of God that his nature is basic to what we all ought to know. All right, right now what we're going to do is we're going to sing a song. We're going to wrap it up here. And then uh, if you need to partake of the communion that we talked about, it's, uh, it's, been, well, it's been prepared for you. You can go right out here. Here's room 100. And uh, someone will serve that and take that supper with you tonight. Let's stand, let's sing, and we'll be sent out tonight. Thank you for your attention.